welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa, of course. And today I'm joined by uh, someone new to our team at Elite Consulting Partners, Director of RIA Services, Vince Leto. Vince, welcome to the team. Uh, glad to be here. Welcome to the family, the team, whatever you want to call it, uh, dysfunctional family at times. But <laughs> uh, but we're here and we, we're finally getting this done. A little snafu yesterday. Uh, we had to push this thing back a little bit. But today we're going to talk about for, for our listeners that are joining us, uh, welcome to the show. We appreciate it. For those uh, that are new, uh, we hope you find it informative. Generally, these are based on conversations that we're having with um, our clients, whether it's the same week, the week before. But uh, they're all the, all of these conversations are all about advisor talk, which is why it's called advisor talk with Frank LaRosa. So today we're going to get really granular, and I'll say granular, but um, details, right? Detailed and, and really basic about um, the RIA world. You know, we talk to a lot of advisors at my organization, and some of them will say, well, I want to, I think I'm going to go RIA, or I'm going to be an RIA, and they don't really necessarily know what it means. So um, I've asked, wanted uh, Vince to come on. He's got a, a long background in the space, so maybe give us some background. Um, and then we're just going to, I'm just going to fire some questions at him that may seem, for some of you, uh, some somewhat elementary, yeah. but I think that there's a huge swath of people within the financial service industry uh, that don't understand some of the basic things about this space, the RIA space, yeah. right? So, um, so Vince, first, why don't we just get into a little bit of a, of your background and um, why you're an expert in this space? Happy to be here, Frank. It's a great organization. A little bit about my background, you know, coming out of school, f first job out of college, I was a retail rep for Morgan Stanley. Right. And uh, I did that for about three years or so. I think I learned a good amount what an advisor goes through to build a book, keep clients happy and um, really run a business. Not an easy job at all. Right. I mean, uh, some people look at advisors, think it's like an easy position. Really, it's not. So, uh, you know, I think we understand or I understand what advisors go through to really build their book and maintain it. So that's important. From there, I moved on to the mutual fund wholesaling world. Um, you know, I worked for Alliance Capital, Alliance Bernstein, moved on to New York Life, wholesaling uh, variable annuities. So always working with advisors throughout my whole entire career. And uh, I think, again, that's an important aspect of we really understand the business, what they're trying to achieve. From New York Life, I moved on to TD Ameritrade, where I spent nearly 15 years uh, recruiting and working with uh, advisors that were looking to create their own RIA. And uh, we had a successful time at TD. I initially worked with um, state registered RIA firms, and that's firms below 100 million. We'll get into that a little bit. And then I, moved, I covered uh, New Jersey and Delaware uh, with firms above $100 million. And 
had success in both territories, um, you know, and again, just working with advisors, uh, moved on to uh, Axos, which is another custodian in the space uh, for a short while. And I spent nearly two years at Raymond James Custody. So I think the background of being an advisor, working with advisors on uh, mutual funds, annuities, um, even to a certain extent, 401ks when we were at Alliance Bernstein, really understand what the advisor needs to do to build a portfolio for for their client. Again, keep them happy, manage your expectations. That was a big word in, in the advisor community or, or at least in the Morgan Stanley world, right? You manage your expectations. And I think if I look back, right, and we'll kind of get into the RA world a little bit, I remember clearly, I mean, I'm 48, so, uh, uh, you know, my first years in, as being an advisor, residualizing your income was like a big deal. Yeah. That was a big word in the advisor community, and they mainly did it via SMAs, right? And they would get a 1% trail, residualize, they're buying individual equities versus mutual funds, they're not getting hit with tax uh Cap, cap gains or, or et cetera from a fund selling position that the client didn't necessarily want to sell. Um, so th that was kind of like the big push in the wirehouse world to really become more fee-based, right? And kind of look at it from a, a business years and years ago, 30 plus years ago, advisors could have, or brokers, right? Not yeah, advisors, brokers, brokers, right? brokers. Brokers could have a big month, a uh, big commission month. Maybe they did a lot of 1035s, a lot of annuities, or maybe they sold a lot of A or B, B shares, share mutual funds. right? <laughs> and uh, they could have a big month. And then the next month, uh, they'd be at the bottom, bottom of that list, right? And every branch has a list, you know. We we used to keep ours in the mailroom, but it would be posted up for everybody to see, you know, what your production was for that month. And I think um, the businesses, as far as the, you know, the actual wirehouses, probably really appreciate having more of a of a streamlined or a stable revenue number. And obviously, the advisors appreciate that as well. So the analysts too, right? Because they they put a higher multiple on recurring revenue. So. That's, so, that was a driving factor. So that kind of comes into play, right? And I think um, obviously the advisor then, again, working on a fee-based, trying to grow the level of the assets. I grow your account. I'm getting a bigger fee. We're in the same we're in the same line, right? So that that all kind of played into um, the world. And and you kind of fast forward, and more and more advisors were looking for more independence, and that typically meant you know. Years ago, you were going to an IBD, which is more independent than a wirehouse type of world, right? Less support, maybe um, more independence, more more of your revenue in your pocket, right? So, but um, advisors then were kind of realizing that maybe that's not as independent as I as I really thought it would be, right? And uh, the RAA became more and more popular. And I think where I really learned about the RAA was at Alliance Capital, we had a division that really catered towards independence and this RAA channel, and nobody knew what it was, what it was about. It was kind of like, why are you even talking to those guys? You know, like, uh, who are, like, you know. They don't even have a Series 7. Yeah, like, uh, who are those guys? I mean, why? How do clients even trust them? They work out of their house or like a small office. <laughs> and um, it was an unknown, obviously. Um, but it it was the side where it was growing, right? And um, that was kind of like really appealing. That was that was something that I kind of noticed that this 
segment is growing much, much faster than all the other segments. And, you know, what am I missing here? Why? Why don't I don't understand this? So I need to learn a little bit more about this through the opportunity of joining a TD. And again, again, TD in the space, in the custody space was not a big player, right? There's some other big players uh, that were ahead of them at the time. Um, Typically Pershing, Schwab, Fidelity, right? I mean, all all those firms were were bigger players generally. And I guess uh, TD had a lot to prove. And um, they they basically did a pretty good job in building out their technology offering and, and making themselves more attractive Two advisors that were looking to create their own uh, RIA yeah. shop. Well, I think where where TD really had a uh, formed a niche is, um, and this is we're not here to talk about you know custodians, but we're, I think where TD really formed a niche was because they were smaller, they could provide the custodial services, but uh, more of a hands on sort of higher, I don't say higher end, but boutique service level than maybe a Schwab or Pershing or Fidelity wasn't giving, right? I think. Yeah. Um, candidly now, I think LPL and or Raymond James, maybe more so LPL, is going to now fill that space with their custodial services. So yeah. let me just get into, I want to just, for the audience, just start, just, you, you made a couple of comments. So I want to just get into a couple of Q&A things, right? Sure. Um, just be like sort of Q&A, uh, you know, one of those fast Q&A sessions. So at the beginning, you said you started working with state registered RIAs, and then you moved into um, over $100 million. What's the difference between a state registered RIA and an SEC registered RIA? Aren't they all under the SEC? So it's kind of... It's way, a good, that's a leading it's a, question, by the way. I know the answer. It's, it's a good question, right? Obviously, Frank knows the answer, right? But I think... Uh, to demystify it, right? I mean, from a simple point of view, state registered RAs, anyone below $100 million. So when you're going to go file to become an RIA, if you're going to be, if you know that you're going to be below $100 million, let's say within the first six to 12 months, you're filing as a state registered advisor. And uh, if you know you're going to be above $100 million within a defined period of time, a shorter period of time, you're going to file as an SEC registered advisor. It really comes down to, I guess one way I like to describe it is who's policing you, right? And state registered advisors are being regulated by the state regulators and SEC advisors are being regulated by the SEC. It's the same rules. It's the same guidelines. It's not uh, as if uh, state registered advisors could get away with something that SEC advisors can't. It's it's basically the same rules and regulations. Who is policing you and who is uh, so why does ultimately uh, going to audit you? That's, that's and this is a question it. because I'm working on a working with a guy right now, <laughs> and for the life of me, I don't understand this. Uh, but he's literally not taking on new accounts because he doesn't want to go over a hundred million dollars. So he's suppressing the growth of his business mm-hmm. because he wants to stay below 100 million he's right around 90 million or so um give or take what the market's doing right what what's the difference like why would an advisor not want to become an sec registered ria versus state registered i'm not really aware that there's a good reason to do that um you know i think uh some advisors have a misconception that the SEC is going to get me um, or the SEC has more audit power than the state regulators do. Uh, That might be true to a certain extent. Uh, But years ago, I think, you know, the average RIA firm that was SEC registered might have had an audit every four years, maybe even sometimes longer than that. 
I think the SEC is trying to do a better job and and kind of um, auditing RAs on a more regular basis. Uh, so that might be one concern. But realistically, I mean, I think if you're, you know, just like when you're a broker, you're keeping your daytimer notes, you're t- keeping your activity in your CRM system, you're databasing your emails, and you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to hide, right? Like what's there's not really a, a real good reason to not take on a $5 million account because the SEC might come knock, knocking on the door. And quite frankly, just like anything else, I mean, if you're if they come knocking on the door and you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to hide. So, Right. Okay, cool. This next question is because I think a lot of mainly wirehouse advisors, for the most part, um, just because they're in their bubble, right? Uh, not necessarily advisors that are independent. And they say, I want to... I'm going to go RIA. I'm going to become an RIA. Yeah. Right. Why is that statement wrong? And the real question is, what's the difference between an RIA and an IAR? So, you know, an RIA, obviously, there's a lot of responsibilities. Let's take a three-person team that's at Merrill Lynch, right? Um, you know, typically, one of the one of the people on the team is going to be the leader, right? The the bigger book or um, kind of uh, the man in charge, et cetera. So who who from that team of three is going to be the chief compliance officer on their RA, right? Because you could set up an RA, you could have outside legal counsel guiding you for compliance services. But typically, unless you're paying a, a much larger fee um, for the outsourced compliance service, one of the three advisors is going to be named chief compliance officer. And I think sometimes that scares people, right? It scares it scares them, you know, what are my real responsibilities? That's not what I do. And they I think it scares them because in the wirehouse world, they're used to someone in the office who's the compliance manager, right? Sitting in that branch um day in day out, you know, uh it's it's a different world. I mean, I remember we used to have a cashiering department, you'd hand in checks, they would give you slips, right? Um and it was sort of a big deal. So for someone that's in the wirehouse world to kind of set up their own RIA and I'm taking on all these responsibilities that the branch is doing for me, um they don't really envision that they could do it, I think and and I think quite frankly the wirehouse world does a uh, a really good job at at telling advisors they can't do it, right? right? Or, or kind of scaring them that um, there's a lot of unknowns. You 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 know you, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get fined. You're going to be kicked out of the business. Whatever it may be, right? So a lot of that are are that's all scare tactics for the most part. Um, but uh, but it's important to understand though that if you're going to form an RIA and and getting back to sort of I don't say dumbing it down, but I think there's a big misnomer that you're actually, as an individual producer, you're you're not an RIA, right? An RIA is a corporate entity. You're an IAR, which is an investment advisor representative underneath your RIA. Yeah. I mean, an RIA is basically you're starting a business. It's like right? an LLC. You're, you're, yeah. you're filing an LLC. Maybe you f- might file taxes as an S-corp. Um, right. We'll talk to talk to your CPA. There's a lot of benefits, uh, you know, to doing that. So at the end of the day, it's you're you're starting a business and some advisors are lifestyle advisors where I like to manage my book. I like to, you know, manage my client expectations. I make a pretty good living at that. And I don't necessarily want to manage a business. You know, at the end of the day, whether it's at five, six, seven o'clock at night, I'm done. And there's a certain aspect where you're running the RA. I mean, you're going out and you're finding office space to lease. 
You know, you're you're hiring assistants. Um, you know, when uh, who's going to do the payroll? Who's going to take care of payroll taxes, benefits, taxes, right? A- everything along those lines. That becomes you know kind of um, a task that not every advisor is willing to take, right? And for those that aren't willing to take it, there's another option, right? You don't need to start your own RIA to be affiliated with an RIA. You could tuck in with a with a, a pretty a larger entity and be an IAR and get the majority of the benefits of pa- practically owning your own RA without actually doing a lot of the, I guess what they would, what some would call minutiae work of running a business. Because you can tuck into another RIA, still have maintain, not all of them are like this, but the majority are, still maintain your own corporate entity, your own LLC slash or sure. DBA, yeah. right? Underneath somebody else's RIA, yeah. And then you're at least you're getting if you do the math, many times the margins are just as good because the RIA itself is paying for a compliance officer or outsource compliance plus the legal plus legal counsel, all of those things. Because Schwab, you know, I think there's also a misnomer that Schwab, Fidelity, whatever the custodian you choose is going to do your compliance for you. And they don't. It's not there. They're going, we don't do that. (laughs) You know, you you have to do that yourself. So, um, you know, I think the other misnomer is, uh, well, I'm going to go RIA because I get a hundred percent payout. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so explain how that's not really true. You do and you don't, and I guess certain custodians work differently. Some custodians have no ticket charge, no asset based pricing, and maybe have less services that they provide you. Right. And you you would get a hundred percent pass through of your revenue. So if you charge one percent and that equaled a million bucks, just for argument's sake, you would get a million bucks. But then out of that million, you're you're basically paying everything that's associated with running that business. Your compliance, your errors and emissions insurance, you're buying billing and reporting systems. Uh, you want Money Guide Pro or eMoney, go out and buy that yourself. Wait a minute, you said buying, billing, and reporting. Doesn't Schwab do my billing for me like, like Morgan Stanley does for the advisor? So that's where some of these custodians that don't really charge an asset-based pricing structure, they're not going to provide a billing and reporting system. So right? the advisor, this is sort of a leading question here. So the advisor actually has to have a system in place that they had to pay for to actually collect the fees from their clients. 100%. Yep. Unless they're looking to do it, uh, you know, where they're going to data dump it into Excel and run a a report manually uh, on a monthly basis, which the SEC would probably not really approve of, right? Because you're not taking an actual daily average balance of of the account. What are some examples of of technology that does all that. So so the common names out there, uh, Orion, Black Diamond, Tamarack, uh, those are some of the, the bigger players that are billing and reporting systems. They've kind of uh, evolved into offering more services. They're they're also including a rebalancing tool, which is important if a, if a, an advisor wants to be multi-custodial versus just holding accounts at a Schwab or a Fidelity. Um, you know, so that kind of all plays into it. What, is that, them, what does that type of technology cost? You know, I think for a firm that is million dollars uh, or whatever. Yeah, uh, l- let's say a team that's uh, three, four hundred million dollars, whatever their production is. It's based off the assets and the number of accounts that are associated with the system. So if you have a lot of accounts, you could be on the higher end of a, a number. If you have less accounts, you could be on the lower end of the number. But typically, if you're a four hundred million dollar team with six hundred accounts 
you're probably looking at um, you know anywhere from fifty to eighty thousand uh, dollars for one of these systems. You know, annually recurring cost, um, and sometimes that includes the rebalancing aspect of the tool. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, but like- then don't forget you have to have somebody that actually knows how to use the system on your team and get make sure the information is correct and then executes on it. I used to explain it that uh, a black diamond and Orion are kind of viewed as the Mercedes and the BMW of the industry, right? They're sort of the best, right? Or viewed to be as the best. But sometimes your client says, hey, man, I gave you a million bucks. All I want to know is where are we at? You know, yeah. I really don't, balance, ending balance. You know, I don't I don't really care if model, you know, your growth model is outpacing the S&P by three percent. Um, allegedly, or whatever the number comes out to be. Or your alpha is 1.3 or something like that. You know, the average client um, is probably not looking at that, right? The average client is looking at it. You know, I I had 3 million bucks at the beginning of the year. It's it's March. Where are we, right? And and that's simple. So I think advisors buy some of these systems that um, they think they need. And in reality, the client doesn't care. Right. And there's there's systems like advise on or panoramics that are more affordable, um, a lot more affordable sometimes. But you're still talking about, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year of recurring cost. And yes, somebody has to your office manager, your assistant has to be able to interpret the data. There's different ways you could present the data to your clients. Typically, they'll have a portal. So who's going to educate the client on using the portal or your staff on on accessing the portal to uh, for these systems. The one big thing that is important, though, is uh, some custodians will give you a billing and reporting system, and they might charge you a few basis points as a custody fee or however they're going to structure it. It's important to note that in those systems or the custodians that offer that tool free, quote unquote, you technically or typically do not own the data. Okay, and that's a huge, huge issue, right? So if you create your own RIA and you're leaving a warehouse or you're leaving an, an IBD and you're doing it for more freedom, you're more flexibility, I want to be able to help my clients, I want to be able to manage money however I see fit, et cetera, owning the data of that billing and reporting system is crucial. You may join or may, you may start using one custodian and in four or five years, maybe there's an issue that drives you away from that custodian. And if you need to change custodians and you don't own that historical data, that's going to be a, a, a pretty big surprise the day you're looking to move and find out that, you know, the past five years of my billing, account balances and everything, I don't own that. I can't move it. Um, man, I wish I would have known that day one, right? So I think uh, some of the platforms that offer some of those billing and reporting systems you know, it might be appealing day one because I'm not outlaying $50,000 for a tool that, you know, maybe I need, maybe I don't, but there's more to it than just, you know, dollars and cents. Yeah. So when you're going through these things as an advisor thinking about starting your own RIA, it's really important. Obviously, you know, this is a, maybe a plug to us, but working with someone like Vince that knows the things, you don't know what you don't know yet. So you have to work with somebody that knows this stuff and, and, Candidly, um, I'm not. This is not a shot at Schwab or anybody at Schwab or Fidelity, or whatever. The, at the custodial level, right? But 
I hear all too often that the advisor at Schwab or the recruiter at Schwab says to the client, oh, we, we help, we'll help you with that stuff. We'll advise you. They use the words, we'll advise you on that stuff. And the advisor interprets that like they're going to do it for them, right? No, they're just going to tell you what you need to go do. Um, and then once they made the decision, it's the, oh, no, no, no. We didn't say we were going to do it for you. We said we were just going to advise you and recommend the software you need to use, but you have to do it. And I think that, um, you know, it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing for you to move. The other thing is, you know, 50,000, 80,000, hundred thousand. There's sometimes a little bit of sticker shock when you think about starting your own company and you have to put things in relative terms, right? Yeah. You're getting a hundred percent payout. So if you're a million dollar producer, you're, you know, a million dollars is passing through the front end yep. and then you have to start taking your, so the net number, it's all about, I used to, I did a podcast called, it's all about the net. And so it's really all about how much you bring home. And so if you hear a number that's $50,000 or $80,000, which could be the biggest sort of, I'll say business expense, right? Yep. Business expense you've ever paid in your life because you are coming from Morgan Stanley, that's just not going to happen. Um, don't necessarily get sticker shock. You have to look at the totality of what you're building. Right, you're building a, a an enterprise, a business, um, and an eighty thousand dollar bill is all relative. So d- just don't get sticker shock with that. But let me move on to the, to the next question because I sort of in, in the interest of time, I want to get through a couple of these things. Because the other comment people make is, "Oh, I want to, I want to be hybrid. I have to be. I think I'm going to do the hybrid thing." Yeah. Right. And they don't really understand that. What's the difference between an RIA? And I'm just going to say it because this is the statement that I hear all the time and a hybrid RIA. I mean, on the surface, you know, a hybrid RIA has an affiliation with a broker dealer. What is that? What do you mean by that? Um, so they'll they'll have a relationship with a, a custodian to hold their fee based accounts and they'll have a relationship with a, a PKS, a, you know, Cabot Lodge, someone along those lines where they could do commission-based revenue. But let's take a step back. A lot of advisors that are transitioning are looking at it as, again, let's let's go to the wirehouse. I have accounts that, I'm a f- that are fee-based accounts. Um, and some accounts I don't really have a lot of activity in. I might own Ford that was inherited. I'm never going to sell it. And um, you may be advising the client on that position, but compliance says, no, 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 like you can't, that can't be a fee-based account. It's, you, you know, you haven't done anything in this account. Like there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a trade. You, you own municipal bonds and, you know, um, you know, you're not trading those positions. So you can't charge a fee on this business, right? That changes when you're in the RA world, whether you create your own RA or you join a bigger RA and become an IAR, right? It, it doesn't matter. There's different fee schedules that RAs could implement that might be appropriate for that inactive equity or bond position account where typically you would think that I need to have a BD affiliation for this segment of client where in reality in the RA world, you may not, right? You may be able to charge a flat annual fee of let's say we're going to charge um, all these accounts that have legacy positions, we're going to charge you 500 bucks a year or whatever it is, a flat annual fee. And um, I'm advising you on what to do in this position. There there may become a time to to get, liquidate this, right? Sure, because a, a decision not to sell is still a decision. I mean, 
shoot, I mean, if you told me, if you're my advisor and uh, you think the market's going to crash and you moved all my money to cash, right, um, and I avoided a loss of 25%, aren't you worth like a 1% fee for that move? Like, I would think that's huge, right? Right. right. But in, in, in some of these other... Or your own Uber or something like that and, and your advisor tells you, don't sell it. Right, because it's going to keep going up, and since he said don't or she said don't sell it, it's up eighty percent. So, a typical thinking be, again, because advisors advisors are busy managing their clients' wealth. Right, um, when it comes to entertaining what's best for the next five, ten, fifteen years of my career, they're not supposed to know what what's best for them. Right, that's not that's not what they do. That's what we do. Right. And that's where a conversation with us is valuable. There's a lot of intricacies in making a move that an advisor shouldn't know. It's not their business to know. It's our business to know. And it's uh, it's our job to basically uh, guide you in the path of making a move. What's the best uh, fit for me and my clients and my team going forward, right? What's a friendly broker-dealer? What does that mean? Friendly broker-dealer is basically uh, a broker-dealer that understands that they're not the lion's share of your business, right? So PKS in the industry is one of the biggest, what's considered an RIA-friendly broker-dealer. They know that they're going to have 5 to 10% of your overall business, and they're they're happy to have that. Um, you know, they clear through whoever they clear through, whether it's NFS or First Clearing or uh, Pershing, et cetera. Sometimes they have all three, too. They're a pretty big uh, outfit. And they know that they're not going to be uh, the lion's share of your business. They'll give you a payout on your commission revenue. But really, that commission revenue that you should be thinking of um, – that you need a BD for is really insurance business. You know, if you're doing variable annuity business, uh, VAs, you can't do on your own, right? So VAs, you absolutely need a broker dealer, unless you're looking for a fee-based variable annuity, which are becoming more and more popular. But quite frankly, uh, commissionable VAs are still a big- But on the flip side, you know, we talk to advisors and they say, well, I want to go RIA because of blah, 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 whatever reasons, right? And I say, okay, great. what do you have in advisory business? They're like, well, I'm 90% advisory. Yeah. I said, okay, well, give me a breakdown of the assets. And then they proceed to tell me that, well, 30% of my assets are in American funds mm-hmm. and I'm collecting a trail on those. And then another 10% is you know, MFS funds and I'm collecting a trail on those. And they don't understand that a trail on a mutual fund is not considered an advisory yeah. uh, uh, revenue. That's, that's brokerage revenue where you need a broker dealer to continue to collect those trails. Yeah. And so, you know, from, from your experience, um, that's not really a question, it's more of a statement. Um, so everybody understand that, that mutual fund trails, annuity trails. It's right? commissionable revenue. That's commissionable revenue, even though it's considered recurring revenue, right? Because it's recurring, like we said at the beginning, yep. build that recurring revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Which a lot of advisors have. I know some friends of mine that are advisors, they have a huge mutual fund book of business yep. where they're collecting recurring revenue in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's not fee-based. It's not considered right. fee-based according to sort of the yeah. industry. So from your experience, when, like, is there a line where an advisor draws that he's going to say, or she's going to say, you know, I'm willing to give up a certain amount of this brokerage business to give up my seven and go pure RIA 
Like, is it 10% of their business, 20% of their business? I think it comes down to more actual revenue, right? So if it's, if it's not, um, I mean, some of the friendly broker dealers are looking at uh, 75,000 in GDC as a bottom, uh, they may not even want to work with you at below that level, right? Um, there's not enough skin in the game at that point. And realistically, I think, uh, you know, some of that a share business could be converted to a fee structure. You know, you could swap it to an institutional share and charge the client a fee. Sometimes that's not easy. It, it could be a difficult uh, transfer, but there's there's options there. Uh, I think if your revenues 100, 150,000 in commissionable revenue, it starts to make more sense to have that BD affiliation because it opens yourself up to increased scrutiny and regulation, um, right? Where there, there's additional regulation that the broker dealer needs to have to watch you, right? So you may have 150,000 in revenue from commission, but now the broker dealer might be responsible to watch everything you do on the RA side of the business. Even though the RA is- Even though it's held away, right? Because- Why? It, it, well, because technically in a BD, now that's that's like doing business away, right? Well, yeah, it's like it's outside like it's business a, it's activity. outside business activity, right? right? They have to watch that. You're registered with them, so now they need to know everything that you do. So you're not basically like, so front running would be a good example of what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, bottom line, they have to they have to have oversight on on your entire business, and some firms, some friendly broker dealers, may say, well, a hundred thousand in GDC is not enough revenue for us. You know, we're going to give you a ninety three percent payout on your commission, but oh, by the way, we want one or two percent of your fee revenue that's held away from us to have the right to continue to do this commissionable business, right? right? So uh, some may say, well, we'll forego that. If you're doing 200,000 in GDC or a bigger number, we won't give you an override or we won't take an override from your fee-based revenue that's held away from so us. So really you have to look at how much brokerage business are yeah. you doing? What are you gonna get paid on it, right? And then what are you gonna give up if if the broker dealer that you're gonna be working with is gonna charge one, two, three, four, some of them charge like 5% yeah. on your advisory business. Like, so what's the math, right? Do the math. Yeah, on, again, on, like, on those you know, numbers. It's, so it's not a dollar, it's not really an asset level. It's a dollars and cents level. You know, when's it going to make sense? Do I really need to continue to do business this way um, to collect an additional 100,000 in revenue, but it's going to detract. I might have more compliance that I that I'm trying to get away from to begin with, right? So that that's the whole thing. So unless it's really significant and there's no other way that you could run that business, it might make sense to not have a friendly broker so you, dealer. So you really need to have, as if you're thinking about doing something like this, you really need to have a strategic plan. Sort of what is your long term plan? Um, and maybe at the beginning, you know, you're going to have to say, you know, what, I'm going to give up that eighty thousand a year in, in revenue because yeah. I'm gonna save it on the other side by not having to pay whatever it is, right? We're not having to pay a firm that we're working with an oversight fee on that business. So, you know, you, those are the business decisions that you have to make as you're becoming a business owner. Um, and it's hard to talk to people in the, in the that are outside the industry about your decisions because they don't understand what's happening, yeah. right? So working with someone like Vince, for, in this case, who's been around um, can help you work through some of these, these 
hurdles, issues, speed bumps, emotional roller coaster that is starting a company um, and just putting things into perspective really more than anything yeah, else. There, you know, bottom line is that we'll, we're aware of options that you have. For example, on this topic, you could become rep of record on basically any account, right? That's a commissionable account. Um, the question is, can you get compensated on that, right? So you may want to have a portion of your book that, okay, it's got to be commissioned. I'll become rep of record on that account, but I'm not going to get compensated, right? So that kind of protects it because that family or that account is part of a bigger relationship and you don't want someone else calling on your client to service a $50,000 variable annuity. So maybe I become rep of record on it, forego payment on it, and eventually there'll be a life change and it'll come back into my world, right? So that's one example. Other examples are, you know, if you're only going to do life insurance and term and things like that, you, you may not need a BD affiliation. You could have an insurance, you could create your own insurance agency and get directly appointed with just about anybody uh, directly to sell life insurance, right? So there's a lot of things. These are kind of like small details of, again, it's not the advisor's job to know everything about making a move, right? They're managing the client's expectations, their client's wealth, you know, but uh, it's important for the advisor to consider having a conversation with us because what you don't know could really hurt you. Right. And, and you've been doing this for about a minute, right? If, if that, right? A cup of coffee, as they say. Yeah. Um, and so your, your knowledge and you look, most advisors that we talk to are really smart individuals, right? But if you yeah. if you haven't been in the space like Vince has for north of 15 years, specifically in the RIA world, right? Um, you just don't know. It's just not, that, not a shot at them. They just, you just don't know what you don't know versus Vince has been doing it a lot longer, which is why we were so excited to have him join the firm um, because it's just, it's a, it's, it's where the puck is going in the industry. So um, anyway, why don't we, why don't we, uh, why don't we stop there? I think we got, we got a next, uh, our next one, really, we're covering all these basics, right? Yeah. Um, I think the next podcast that you guys should listen to is going to be really all about should you basically is an RIA structure the right structure for you? We're going to cover that on the next show because that's a whole nother topic and there's some fundamental things going on there and costs. We touched on a little bit of here, yeah. but but is it right for you? So stay tuned for our next episode. We're really excited about it. Um, again, we hope this was informative. If you are talking to someone that is saying to you, hey, I think I'm going to go RIA. I'm trying to learn about it. Make sure you send in this podcast because we hope it helps. Um, if you have any questions um, and you want to reach Vince, what's your number so they can reach out to you? Yeah, 201-723-5934. Obviously, we'll post it up here. Uh, you go to our website as well. We're listed there. Um, what's but, your email address? Yeah, Vince Leto at EliteConsultingPartners.com. Uh, conversation doesn't cost you anything. And I think away from that, part of what we'll get into the next uh, the series is we don't represent one particular company. And that is huge. Right. So we're going to give you a, an aspect or or kind of a, a lay of the land that is really kind of a, just an independent point it's of view. Totally agnostic. You know, of of what's available to you. So that's a pretty powerful re resource for you as you're considering your move. So awesome. So we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts. <laughs>